bike had been bitten twice. When we got into Dubbo, they had they ended up measuring the um, fang marks on either side of his ankle, and um, they can tell how big it was. So it was a juvenile snake and they can't regulate their venom so some bigger snakes will give you a dry bite as a warning juvenile snakes can't do that so he got a double dose hi my name is lana mitchell from the royal flying doctor service this is a podcast series about life in the bush, mateship, courage, and the role that the Royal Flying Doctor Service plays in serving rural and remote communities. This is the Flying Doctor Podcast. My name is Kira Lee Dargan from the Royal Flying Doctor Service, and I'm an Aboriginal woman of the Wiradjuri Nation. This podcast has been recorded on Ngunnawal land and is being broadcast across all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations. We at the Royal Flying Doctor Service want to acknowledge Elders, past and present. The RFDS recognises that this is First Peoples land and always will be. Australia is famous for having the highest number of venomous snakes in the world. For most of us, there is a learned respect for snakes. Where you have snakes, you can have bites. And these can be really problematic for a number of reasons. Firstly, it's quite remarkable how a snake can be just completely invisible within long grass or foliage. And if they bite you, sometimes you don't even know that you've been bitten until symptoms start. Secondly, you could accidentally step on or disturb a snake, get bitten, but only get what they call a dry bite with no venom, which serves more of a warning from the snake. But regardless of whether you know you've been bitten or not, or if it was a dry bite or not, it is vital to get emergency medical assistance, particularly if symptoms start. And if you're in a remote part of this big continent, that can be really challenging. Our interview in this podcast is with Brenda Purvis, a wonderful mother of five, who found herself in the scary position of having her youngest child bitten by a snake, and there was an absolute dash to save Jack's life. She's here to tell us what happened. Hello, Brenda. How are you? I'm good. Tell me about the 120-acre block that you live on. Where is it located and what do you farm? So we live in um, a little country town um, just on the outskirts of Gilgandra. It's in the central west New South Wales. Um, we're about 65 k's um, north of Dubbo and uh, we've got a few sheep here on our 19-acre block where the house is and then we've got 100 acres sort of just down the road where we've got commercial cattle and we've got um, our stud Charolais cattle. Yeah, I love going down and having a play with the cows. It's good. And you've been there for a while? Yeah, so we built this house and I've lived in Gill all my life, born and bred here pretty much, and we built this house about 10 years ago. What do you love about the district and, and about that part of New South Wales? Well, I always say, because I travel a lot with my job, and they say, oh, you're from Dubbo, and I say, no, gosh, of course I'm not. I said, I'm from Gilgandra, hub of the west. Like, you know, you need to come to Gil. So um, it's actually the home of the Cooey March. So the Cooey March started in Gilgandra. So that's um, probably one of the things that we're quite famous for. Oh, you have to explain. What is the Cooey March? So uh, the Hitchin brothers in the First World War, they got a group of men from Gilgandra and they walked from Gil to Sydney, calling out Cooey along the way, and they gathered 
men and arrived in Sydney to go and fight. I had no idea. Mm. There you go. That shows my naivety and ignorance in terms of New South Wales history. Yeah. But anyway, so, yeah, Gil, I love Gil. Um, The people are beautiful. It's one of the friendliest towns you could um, ever come into and live in and everyone just looks after everybody else. I wouldn't think of moving or living anywhere else. That's fabulous. And you have a large family there that have all grown up and and worked on the land, correct? Yep. So I've got five children. I've only got one left at home now. So we're nearly empty nesters. So my eldest Alex is at Gundawindi and he works on a property up there. My second son Peter's in Wellington and he works at a shop in Wellington. Caitlin has just returned from South Korea. She spent three years over there teaching English as a second language and she's now in Bathurst. Heidi has just gone to Mount Isa and is working on a cattle station. They just started mustering this week, so it's very exciting. We all can't wait to hear how she's going and what she's doing. She's been out of service, so it's all very exciting for all of us. And my youngest, Jack, he's doing a uh, he's in year 11 and doing uh, a school-based apprenticeship in metal engineering fabrication. So they're all sort of doing different things. Oh, that's great. And... I understand you're a teacher or assistant principal. I'd say jack of all trades, master of absolutely nothing, but I'm the assistant principal learning and support for Western Plains schools. So I travelled, my base school is here in Gilgandra at Gilgandra Public School, and I travel from Gil up along the Carceray to the Queensland border and do Lightning Ridge, Gadooga, out to Angonia and all the schools in between. And I, um, what I call, do the dog leg, which is up to Coonabarabran, um, Baradine, Wabiga, Piliga, back up to Walgut. So, um, yeah, something interesting every day and something different. So, yeah, I sort of say that I'm the problem solver for the schools. If the principals and the staff can't sort it out, they call um, West sort of school services. Um, they call us in and we go and try and support as much as we can. So you must have a massive network of of friends and colleagues and communities that you work with. That must be really fulfilling. It's great. And, you know, and you do, you you become really good friends with a lot of the staff, especially in the out west schools. Um, Lightning Ridge, we call that our social hub because they are so social up there. There's something on um, after school virtually every day. They're very social. Um, Last time we are up there, we went to, I think it's... um, Flicks in the Sticks, where they had the showing of the short films and we always sort of go out for tea and things like that. And it's great because a lot of my small isolated schools, quite often we are the only people that they see. What sort of size are these schools that you visit, Brenda? Um, I, I just asked because uh, I live in a in a rural area where my children went to a school uh, that had, when we first started the school, they had 80 children. And by the time my second child left uh, some 10 years on, they were up to 135 or so. Um, but are the schools that you're working with, are they large hubs uh, for their whole region or are they really small with only a handful of classes? It ranges. So I've got some that uh, have seven students up to a few hundred students. 
So, and I have three connected community schools in amongst all that as well. So, um, yeah, it, it just depends as to where you're going and what the need is. So Wilmeringle sort of more a mission school mm-hmm. as where, you know, you go up to the ridge where it's very diversified up there with the different people and quite transient. Some of the people are quite transient there as well. So, yeah, it just depends. Fascinating. All right, well, let's go back to a Christmas party that occurred back almost 11, 12 years ago. You and the family were out water skiing. Could you tell me a little bit about what that day was like, what the weather was like and the surroundings? My husband works at West Track in Dubbo. Mostly a few weeks before Christmas, they have their annual Christmas party and they like to go water skiing. And so they went out to Ningen and they're all camping out there. We only went out for the day. We got there, oh, must have been about nine o'clock, I think, in the morning. And we had Heidi and Jack with us. They were the only two kids that we took with us this day. It was really hot. It was really, really hot and dry. And so the kids got out. There was a um, some play equipment and they said, oh, can we go and play? I said, yeah, off you go, sort of thing. We got our chairs and went up. Where they were camped, it was sort of up on this um, platform. So we were sort of sitting up there having a chat while the kids were playing and whatever. And it wasn't that long. And Jack came over and he said, I think something's bitten me. And I said, oh, let me have a look. And it just looked like he had scraped the back of his heel going downstairs you know how you scrape the back of your heel sometimes and you know a little bit blood but it's okay so I had a look and not mother of the year at all said oh you're all right off you go go on off you go buddy and so he went and then it wasn't long and he was back again and he's sort of standing looking at me with his arms down and his legs apart and I just I looked at him and I said are you all right mate and he said I've got a my eyes feel funny and there's a buzzing in my ears and I said oh come here and he came over and he was sweating profusely you know at five years old you don't sweat like that I thought he must have been having heat stroke or something because it was really hot I ripped his swim shirt off and um, I said to my husband oh do you want to go and grab him a drink I said I know what's going on here and he was laying in my arms and one of the guys said oh did you want to put him up in our cabin And I said, oh, no, I think I'll keep him here with me. And Robert bought him back a drink and he had a little sip. And I just said to Rob, I said, oh, I don't know. I think I think we need to go home. And we'd only been there probably 20 minutes. Oh, wow. So very, very quick. Rob's going, you sure? Anyway, next minute he went really white. His eyes rolled back in his head and he passed out. And so I threw him at my husband going, get him to the car, there's water there. I don't know what the water was going to do, but, you know, the stuff that goes through your mind. So we all took off and, of course, everyone followed us. And then Jack started, he was still unconscious, but started vomiting and it was coming out his nose. This is on the way to the car? Yeah, on the way to the car. And so they put a towel down. We put him on the ground. I'm saying, we need to ring triple O. Look, I'm really good with everyone else's kids, but I'm absolutely hopeless with my own. (laughs) We need to ring triple O. Is there a hospital? Is there even an ambulance? Where the hell are we? And I was really lucky. There was another lady, Elise, who's a teacher. She just took over and... And we could hear the ambulance coming over the bridge. The hospital wasn't far away then? It wasn't very far away. Look, it seemed like a long time 
to me, but it probably wasn't that long. And the boys sort of ran up to direct the ambulance down. So it was probably only, you know, five minutes at the absolute max, I reckon, by the time we wow. rang till they came. As I mentioned earlier, this podcast has been made possible with the support of Isuzu Ute Australia. Having reliable vehicles is imperative in the harsh Australian outback, and Isuzu have provided D-Max Utes and MUX SUVs to pull seven large RFDS flight simulators as they engage in school, community and field day activities for the Royal Flying Doctor Service. These simulators are full-size planes, minus the wings, and the Isuzu D-Max and MUX vehicles are a perfect match for the long-distance heavy towing demands of these RFDS simulators right across Australia. So keep an eye out for them as they travel around each state, and we would love to see photos and locations on our Flying Doctor podcast community Facebook page when you see them. So Jack is lying on a towel on the ground and he's vomiting blood that's coming out of his mouth and out of his nose and he's pale. Is he conscious or is he? He wasn't, but then, yes, he came back into consciousness as the ambulance pulled up. And so then they went through their normal thing about, you know, who we are, what happened. And I was relaying to them, you know, that he came, he was standing there and, um, sweating and um, had a ringing in his ears and his eyes were funny and all that sort of thing and so they're checking him out getting him ready to put in the ambulance and then they said oh he hasn't been bitten by anything has he and I went oh actually he did say the first time he came that he thought something had bitten him the penny drops said, for Brenda <laughs> Not the sharpest tool in the shed, but anyway. And they said, where? And I said, oh, on his ankle. And so they had a look and they bandaged his leg, which literally saved his life. So tell me about that bandage, because that's the snake bite bandage, which is used yeah. to, they call it a pressure immobilization bandage. And yeah. it's supposed to apply pressure and immobilize the entire limb with the view that it stops or slows, not stops, but slows the blood and therefore the venom running through the body. What did they tell you about that bandage? Well, they sort of didn't say anything about it um, at the time, but Mm -hmm. it was just part of their procedures that they, um, and obviously they saw he'd been bitten. I hadn't even looked, so there you go. And they put it on. And once we got in the ambulance, you could hear them um, radioing back to the hospital saying it's a sna- you know a young child has been bitten by a snake. So it was really really funny when we got well funny now it wasn't at the time I suppose when we got to the hospital there was a locum on local uh, locum doctor from Trangion. And he probably thought all his worst nightmares had arrived at once when we came through the door. They were trying to um, scramble to get someone to come to um, pick Jack up. They did a, a swab of his ankle once he got there and to see what variety of snake it was. So they sort of, the ambulance and that had decided, yes, he's been bitten by a snake. He presented with all, you know, symptoms of a snake bite apparently. And so they swabbed and it did take a long time. I don't think they swabbed them anymore. Um, I think that's old practice now. 
So they swabbed it and he came back as a brown snake bite. So that's sort of why they say don't wash the area or any of that sort of thing. Well, years ago, I mean, if we go back decades, you know, they used to say, you know, suck the venom out and spit it out. Or they used to say wash the area with soap. I mean, don't do any of those things. So to, for listeners, do not wash the, the wound. Do not... Do not put your mouth anywhere near it. The The process of, of treating a snake bite has changed over time. And at this point, it's all about that bandage and getting to the antivenom. So what did they what did they tell you about antivenom? Well, they had um, what's called a polyvenom, which um, caters for different types of snake bites. So technically, you want the, the anti-venom of that particular snake. So they really wanted to have the brown snake because apparently the polyvenom can be worse than the snake bite at times. So um, they didn't really want to give him that. So we were really lucky because um, in these isolated small communities, there was a video link up and Gilgandra Hospital has one as well, where they can link up to bigger hospitals. So we were very lucky to have a paediatric doctor and a toxicologist on the other end of the camera. How was Jack doing at this point? Yeah, he was conscious and he was really good. The thing that really surprised me was pains in the stomach. So he had really, really bad cramps in his stomach. When we had him on the towel by the side of the car, he was, when he came to, he was crunching his legs up, saying he's got really, you know, his tummy's really sore, his tummy's really sore. Well, back at the hospital, that was one of the things. He'd have these um, spasms on, and cramps in his stomach, which would last probably a minute or so, and then they'd, they'd go away. But then they would come back probably every 20 minutes or so at that stage what were the doctors saying about that not much actually they weren't saying anything at all yeah but he was awake very pale but he was awake Heidi was in reading to him I can remember the doctor coming over and saying to us you know everything's okay he's doing really well everything's great and then he'd go over to the corner where the nurse manager was and saying we need that chopper here we need that plane they need to be here right now and I'm thinking, I can hear you. Like, you know, then he'd come back and everything's fine, you're doing okay. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, this poor guy. He was obviously very, very worried about Jack. Had he been bitten once or more? Jack had been bitten twice. When we got into Dubbo, they had they ended up measuring the um, fang marks on either side of his ankle and um, they can tell how big it was. So it was a juvenile snake and they can't regulate their venom so some bigger snakes will give you a dry bite as a warning and not inject the venom as where juvenile snakes can't do that so he got a double dose gosh so he's he's only five years old it's not a very big body and he's no. been given a double whammy we've probably been there maybe half an hour 40 minutes and Jack was okay, except for these pains in the stomach. And then all of a sudden, he just went really, really pale. His eyes rolled back again. And I just, I said to him, something's wrong. Something's wrong with Jack. And you could hear the camera zooming in. They had to, had no choice. They had to, we couldn't wait any longer for the um, brown snake venom to come. They had to give him the poly venom. And I have to say, Ningen Hospital is fantastic. Like the ambulances people were still there um, apparently the Royal Flying Doctor had just arrived so the driver took off to go and get them and we had two ambulances 
um, the head nurse and another nurse and the doctor around the bed and they had the breathing tubes and everything because um, sometimes you've got to do that um, apparently if he has a bad reaction to the antivenom. Oh, so they had to intubate him? Well, they were ready to do it if he oh. took a turn oh. for the worst. They were obviously very concerned. They were, yeah. I actually left. My husband stayed because I thought, if he does, I don't want to be there to see that. Oh, you didn't want to see him intubated or? No, no. Right. So I went out and sat in the waiting room with Heidi while they gave him the antivenom. And, um, and luckily they didn't have to. As soon as they gave him the antivenom, he came to, apparently, and um, he was, you know, still very, very sick, but he didn't have the reaction that he could have had. Yeah, and then the Royal Flying Doctors arrived. They come crashing through the door and um, took over. So much to the release of, relief of the um, locum doctor from Trangy, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> so what did they say? What did the RFDS say when they arrived? Uh, so they just did all their, their checks and they had a, a machine that they put on him. They actually checked um, uh, his bite and how he was responding. And um, they left the bandage on at that stage um, but then our problem was when we left Ningen, we didn't know whether we were going to the Children's Hospital in Sydney or Dubbo Children's, uh, Children's Ward because we had to get a um, paediatrician to take him on in Dubbo. So we left Ningen on the plane not knowing where we were headed. So my husband then had to sort of rush home. And I mean, talk about country people like he he's got a really good friend at Coli that rang and we found you know he knew that Jack had been bitten well he'd had a bag packed ready to go with Rob if we had to drive to Sydney he was going as the second driver so you know oh. you wouldn't get that in a bigger city well maybe you would but you know country people just tend to drop everything to help but anyway we we're lucky enough Dr Fitzgerald um, took him on in Tubbo? Were you in the in the plane with Jack? Yes, I went with Jack, yeah. What was that like? Yeah, Jack was awake, just very pale, although he says he doesn't remember much of it. I asked him the other day and he goes, no. He said, all I remember is saying that you said I was okay. And he said, when really I wasn't. <laughs> so, no, they were great. They, were, they spoke to us the whole time. Um, yeah, Jack was sort of in and out of consciousness and very reassuring, very reassuring. Yeah, but they got us into Dubbo as quickly as they could and then we were transferred into the Dubbo base hospital. Was Jack there in hospital for very long? Because when you look at, um, I don't know, movies and the idea is, you know, you get the antivenom and suddenly, you know, doo -doo -doo, superhero style, you're, <laughs> you know, you can continue with life. But that's not really the way it works. So what happened for poor Jack? So we, he spent the next three days in hospital. He was already hooked up to fluids. The Royal Flying Doctor had done that. And I remember being in emergency and this nurse was um, there. Jack needed to go to the toilet, actually. And I said, look, you know, he really needs to go to the bathroom. He came and unhooked him. And I said, oh, do you think you should be doing that? And I mean, I'd spent a lot of time in hospital with my oldest child. So I sort of had a bit of a nursing background for a few years with him. And I just thought, oh, that was a bit odd. And I said, oh, would you like a sample of your urine? Because that's normally one of the things they always want to. And he goes, oh, 
oh well I suppose it can't hurt so he gave me the sample so I took him into the bathroom whatever Jack's sample was like um, dam water muddy dam water is what it looked like anyway we got back into bed and I just sat it on the end of the bed because they were busy and anyway it was probably 10 minutes or so and the emergency manager came past and then stopped and came back again and she said pointed and she said is that little boy that was bitten by the snake I said yes and I said that's a sample of his urine and she said oh my god why is he not hooked up Anyway, so then she started yelling and running around and he was hooked back up and they'd come down. They were taking bloods every 15 minutes and sending to pathology. And then she's saying, anyone that hasn't seen, and I can't remember what she called it, come into the office now. And so she took his specimen and went in. And apparently his urine, it was, um, uh, the venom breaks down the muscle and makes it all squishy so the snake can eat you apparently so that was his muscle being broken down and that's what it looked like we got so much attention after all of that and he was still having pains in the stomach and things like that and he had those pains in the stomach for about six weeks wow and wouldn't eat so when we got home from hospital after three days he wasn't, he couldn't go to school for a while because you couldn't bump him because he would bleed internally. And we had to be very, very careful about that. Oh, you have to explain that. And was that as a result of the venom and the poison that was inside him? Yes, yeah. So that's to do with something with the, um, the venom and the breakdown of the muscle and um, internal bleeding. Yeah, we had to be careful. So, and when he did, because he was in kindergarten, so when he did go back to school, his poor teacher, she was beautiful, but was quite worried about, you know, we had to, you know, what happens if he does, you know, I, I didn't go on any road trips because I had, I made sure I was around in case something happened to him and he wouldn't eat. So he could not eat for a long time. And I remember saying to my husband, I'm going, after Christmas, I'm going to take him down to the children's hospital because something's not right. And we'd had him back to the doctor around these stomach pains, like, all the time and him not eating. And he was sitting on the lounge one day and he just, he was so skinny with this big head. And I'm going, it's not right. It's just something's not right. Anyway, it was probably just, just before Christmas, he had vomiting diarrhea really badly and he ended up back at the girl hospital and I took him up there and there was this <laughs> there was this African doctor on there was no vomiting diarrhea going around Gil or anything like that and I just said to him look he's had really bad stomach pains he was bitten by a snake about six weeks ago and he said he was and I said yes and he said oh this is probably the rest of the poison coming out and I looked at him and I said what do you mean and he said he's had stomach pains and things like that. He said, oh, yeah, it happens all the time with snake bites in Africa. He said, this will be, you know, the rest of the poison coming out. And I'm going, where, where were you six weeks ago? Like, yeah, this is what I needed to know. And that's what he told us. Well, the next day I was making muffins and Jack came out and he said, oh, can I have a muffin, mum? And I said, yeah, dog, of course you can. And thinking, oh, I only take a bite and that'll be it because that's all he's been doing. And he ate the whole muffin and he came back and said, can I have another one? I said, you can have whatever you want. And he's now 16 and hasn't stopped eating since. So, 
Wow. But I was right. You know, when they say mother's, you know, intuition, you know, the pains in the stomach were connected to the snake bite. He never had them till he got bitten, and it took six weeks for that poison to get out of his system. Gosh. He's been through quite a bit. Does he now, as a 16-year-old, has he, you know, got a phobia or paranoid about snakes, or, or does he wear this whole thing as a bit of a trophy that he survived? Jack's pretty laid back. He's a, he's a really quiet, he's a no-frills child, you know, the Clayton's child, the child you have when you don't have a child because you never see or hear him. He's really quiet, <laughs> unlike his mother. No, he, he doesn't. It's probably more me. I've got some snake bandages in every vehicle, every side-by-side, <laughs> motorbikes, um, in every... In your handbag. <laughs> Absolutely. We have them everywhere. I think I might even have four in the cruiser so it's uh <laughs> no one's allowed to go anywhere without having it there and I never used to worry about snakes but I certainly do now and I can understand that absolutely I had no idea about the long-term impact of venom in the body and how long it takes for that venom to move out or to flush out so yeah. thank you for explaining that I am really glad that Jack came up to you and said, I don't feel right. But as I said, not mother of the year, I need to step my game up, I think, and pay more attention. <laughs> and, and also that you didn't just go and lay him down in the tent and say, I'll come back and check on you in an hour or something, you know? That, yeah, that's right. Yeah, uh, it, it could have turned out really badly and, and thankfully it didn't. No, we were very, very lucky. And the amount of venom he had in his system, he really should not have survived. So we are very, very blessed to still still have him. The medical people, the Royal Flying Doctors, the staff in Ningen, they were just fantastic in how they treated. They saved his life. They really did. The thing is, you shouldn't move. If you've been bitten by a snake, you don't move because that pushes the blood around quicker. The fact that he passed out also contributed. To being saved. Yeah. Mm. Thank you so much, Brenda. I hope as you travel around all these schools, through uh, remote New South Wales that you continue to spread such good good work but also to tell them about snakes (laughs) (laughs) you call Jack the snake boy oh he's snake boy (laughs) thank you so much it's it's been really enlightening no thank you and I hope that others get some benefit out of hearing our story thanks for listening If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with family and friends. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also join our new Facebook group called the Flying Doctor Podcast Community, where you can chat to other listeners. And please do try out our new podcast hotline. You can call and leave an audio message with questions and feedback on the podcast. The number for the hotline is 02-8405-7928. We look forward to hearing from you. The Flying Doctor podcast was presented by me, Lana Mitchell, and senior producer is Mandy Cullen. Thanks again for listening. Hi, it's Sarah calling in from Darwin. I just wanted to say thank you so much for the Flying Doctor podcast. I love listening to it on my morning commute. I had no idea how much the Flying Doctor does. I thought it was just used in emergency situations like the air ambulance stuff. But it's been amazing to learn about all the services you offer. So keep up the good work and keep the podcast coming. Thank you. Before I head off, 
I just want to thank one last time our sponsor and major national partner, Isuzu Ute Australia. Isuzu is committed to supporting the communities in which the RFDS operates, and this podcast would not be possible without their support. To learn more, search Isuzu Ute online.